Are you, are you willing to um, walk a path of humiliation? Uh, you know, are you willing to follow in the path of Jesus? You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. A lot of you probably know that long before we launched this ministry, my co-founder and I started a blog together called The Body Politic that published short personal experience articles by politically active Christians. So our blog has actually been around for a lot longer than our organization. And one of my favorite articles that we ran before we turned the blog into a ministry was submitted by a reader who asked to remain anonymous at the time. It was called Four Words That Deprive You of Power for the Sake of the Gospel. And I'll link to it in the show notes on the website. It was about how important it is for Christians to get good at admitting, I might be wrong. I was thinking about that article a lot while I worked on this week's episode, because this week we talk with someone who took a big risk and said those words in public about an issue he had been very vocal about for a very long time. That's a hard thing to do, and it happens pretty rarely right now. So when it does happen, when someone takes the risk and makes the change, I think it's important to hear about it. Our guest is Joshua Harris. He's a former pastor and current graduate student and communications consultant, but most of us know him first and foremost as an author. He's written a number of books, including Why Church Matters and Dug Down Deep, but his most famous book, of course, is I Kissed Dating Goodbye which was first published in 1997 when he was barely out of his teens. The book is pretty well known in evangelical and fundamentalist circles, but for any of you who might be unfamiliar with it, you should know that it's been controversial. It popularized the idea of courtship and positioned it as a more spiritually sound alternative to dating. The people who liked the book really liked it. And in a lot of churches and even families, its ideas have been almost treated as spiritual mandates, as practices that are non-negotiable. And for a lot of people who became teenagers and young adults in those environments, that ended up provoking confusion and stress and sometimes even inflicting wounds that have taken a long time to heal. Before he wrote the book, Joshua was raised in a tight-knit network of Christian communities, and he began his career as a motivational speaker for their kids and youth while he was still in his teens. He wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye at the dawn of his 20s because he saw the hurt and confusion and spiritual counterproductivity that people were dealing with by being part of the dating scene, and he wanted to offer something healthier and better. And his public profile exploded. Esteem for the book even ended up opening the door for him to begin pastoring at a really young age without even going to seminary yet. But the book wasn't just the start of his career, it was also deeply personal for him. It was actually, in part, the story of how he and his wife got married. He didn't just see it as good ideas he was suggesting, but also as the first-hand account of what he knew worked because it had worked for him, which makes the last few years so interesting. Through his time as a pastor and then the advent of social media, He started hearing more and more from people who had tried out his ideas or who had grown up in homes where practicing his ideas was required and who were still left dealing with 
in some cases, just as much hurt and confusion and even estrangement from God as the people whose pain had inspired him to write the book in the first place, starting to open himself up not just to the people who agreed with his book, but also the people who disagreed with it or the people who had been hurt by it, the people he wouldn't normally hear from as often or be around as much, led him to a point where, earlier this year, he's actually announced that he's asked his publisher to take the book out of circulation entirely. We talked for a while about his personal history and the legacy of the book, but we're going to skip past that for now. After the interview, we'll come together for some key takeaways, and I'll tell you how you can hear the whole conversation before we join together in prayer. But for now, we're going to jump in as he and I start talking about how he got to a point where he was willing to make a public declaration that he might have been wrong. Talk to me a little I assume there was probably, as you were going through this process, uh, either external or internal pressure to not double back, to not discontinue it, even as you were seeing the problems. What did... Um, what did the stakes feel like or seem to be to you? Uh, did you feel like there were stakes or like you were risking something? Yeah, definitely. And it took a, I mean, it took a long time. I, I, um, you know, what people, what people hear that just kind of on a superficial level hear about this is they hear, you know, maybe they hear something like Josh Harris is reconsidering his book and then Josh Harris is making a documentary and, you know, it just kind of sounds like this big um, organized project, but it was actually a very messy, disorganized, confusing process in many ways for me that I I was scared to start. I kind of started in, you know, fits and starts. Um, I Why were you, sorry to interrupt, why were you scared? What were you afraid of? Well, I, I think I was, a, I think I was scared of, you know, when you open the door to being wrong, about something that you're very tied to, you just, you don't know what's going to be, you don't know what's going to be left at the end of that process. You don't know what's going to be left of. You don't know. You don't know like how wrong am I? <laughs> um, you know, like what, uh, I think that's why a lot of leaders never want to admit they're wrong because the people who are on your on your team in your tribe get pissed off if you admit you're wrong, and then the people that are opposed to you are never going to be um, satisfied with whatever it is you're admitting you're wrong, and so they're just going to use that moment as an opportunity to say, "Well, you're not you're not owning up to all that you're wrong about," and so it just feels like a no win um, scenario, I think. Um, and so I just I couldn't have even articulated all that at the time, but it just was like. Oh, you know, what is this going to be like? What is the, what are people going to think of me? Who am I going to anger? Um, so I, you know, what I ended up doing is I, I, um, I had this interaction on Twitter. This is how it all got kicked into, into place. I was, I was thinking about how do I go back and reevaluate this? What would that look like? Do I just go back and like, you know, change the book, do a new version, you know, me just make a comment like, you know what, there's some things about the book that are un unhelpful, but you know, for the most part, it's great. I mean, I just didn't know what to do. And, um, this person, this woman wrote me on Twitter and she said, your book was used against me like a weapon. Hmm. And, um, but she did it in a, like a gracious way. <laughs> and, and I, um, 
And I just was willing to listen to that. And I just responded to her just on a person to person level. I wasn't viewing this as like this, this big public moment, but I just said, I'm so sorry. And, um, that ended up getting picked up by these different news outlets and uh, magazines. And they started doing articles on Josh Harris's apologizing. Well, what that ended up doing was forcing me to answer the question of what are you apologizing for? Are you really apologizing? And people on all sides were kind of annoyed by it. It was like, some people were like, why are you apologizing? Your book is great. And then other people who are paying attention were like, well, he said he was sorry to her, but he's not really saying what he's sorry about. He's not really, you know, he's not really being clear. Is this a real apology? And so there's just all these people that were unhelped by that. And I realized, okay, you know what? I don't want to just have this kind of knee jerk reaction of um, apologizing if I've not thought carefully about this. Um, I am sad that anyone would feel like the book was used against them like a weapon, but what, you know, is that the fault of the book? What's actually taking mm-hmm. place here? And so the steps I took, I, I, on my website, I invited people to share their stories. We, we got I think close to 600 letters and they came from all over the map. I mean, many really sad, really um, hurt by the book. Others saying the book was positive. There was a, there was a mix of responses. And then I got a professor at uh, my school to lead me through a guided study where I, I picked a list of books that I felt would give me a kind of a big picture overview to help me think about this topic theologically, sociologically, um, to, to look back and say what had shaped me leading up to writing the book, what has the fallout been, um, what, are, what are other people saying about these issues. And so I read those books uh, with his guidance, wrote papers on them, and that really helped me to think. And then I also went back and reread my book after many years of not having read it. And that was like an out-of-body experience. And I, I, um, I just, you know, began to see that, uh, that there were some, some real flaws that I was seeing, but I was still um, unsure what to, what to do about that and how serious that was. And so the, um, the documentary came up in the midst of that. A fellow student at my school wanted to do this uh, thesis project talking about the state of Christian dating and singles and so on. And um, she invited me to be a part of this, and we ended up deciding to to make it about my journey because it gave us the opportunity to follow me going and actually interacting with people in person and with the, a lot of the, the authors that I had read, the books that I had read, uh, as well as meeting face-to-face with people. You know, I went back and, and I met the woman who had written me that tweet about the book being used against her like a weapon. And I think for me, it was important because... I didn't want to just kind of go up on a mountain and um, then come down with my, you know, my new uh, decision of <laughs> here's what, yeah. you know, here's what's good about my book. I, I felt like it needed to be a public process so that people could, could see what was taking place and hear that I was asking questions. I felt like it needed to involve other people so that they could be giving me input. And I also wanted to highlight other thinkers that were uh, doing good work on this subject. And so the, you know, the documentary became, it really was a real part of my journey. And I didn't know where I was going to end. I mean, I was writing the, I wrote the documentary and was doing all these interviews. But even as it was unfolding, I wasn't sure where I was going to land. I didn't know that I was going, the book was going to be discontinued at that point. I wasn't sure that that was the the right answer. And um, it wasn't until the very end that I reached the conclusion in light of 
the level of hurt that this book has caused. And, and even though other people would say that it helped them, uh, you know, I use the analogy of a, of a car being recalled. You know, thousands of people love the car, but hundreds of people are dying in accidents. Then you, know, you can't just listen to your, your happy customers. You've got you to do something about the problem. When you went home at the end of the day, what was your prayer life like during this process? What were you wrestling with um, or talking to God about or with your family about in prayer um, as you were seeing these things, taking in these things, making these hard decisions and potentially embarrassing decisions? Yeah. Well, I think that um, I think it was a very humbling time just in terms of recognizing that um, you can make assumptions about what you think God is doing and then look back and realize, well, he never, he never really said that. I just made that assumption. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, probably, a, probably one of the most significant things for me during that time, I, I had this one sermon on Elijah in the cave and Elijah kind of his uh, breakdown after confronting the prophets, the false prophets, and um, how he goes into the wilderness and is just like, you know, I want my, I wish my life was over. And he um, doesn't hear God in the um, the fire and the earthquake and the wind and so on. It's just the, the still small voice. And that passage, I preached that so many times and I would, people would ask me to come speak and I would just like always preach that because it was like the passage that was, that was speaking to me. Um, and I think that what I, uh, drew from it was that, um, you know, Elijah had these great desires to serve and these great plans, but, um, his plans were not God and God is able to work through, um, all kinds of different means and methods that we might not, we might not choose, or we might not understand. And we can, we can do something thinking that, you know, that's what God wanted and that's the outcome that he, that he was promising, but he never actually promises certain outcomes. And sometimes we do things that may have been more just our own kind of energy and ambition or whatever. And, um, that doesn't mean that he's not still good and it doesn't mean that he can't still turn things for the, the good of others, but it's just a hard thing to face up to, I think in the moment. And so um, that that really resonated with me and the way that God keeps going after Elijah and patiently speaking to him and, and explaining to him um, and actually not explaining to him, <laughs> but just saying, uh, but just saying, I know what I'm doing. Um, stepping back a little bit more to talk about relationships during this time, um, I'm assuming that or as successful as the books were and especially within the primary community you were raised in how much they seemed to resonate there um were there all along people in your life who weren't necessarily sold on your ideas yeah um not necessarily okay. like closely involved in my life i mean i just i was aware of people who were critical of the of the books and um, and I never held them in this way that was um, wanting to force them on other people or so on. So I think that was part of my 
sense of, well, I've never, you know, looked down on people or, you know, tried to push this on anyone, that kind of a thing. But, but I think that did happen in many different settings. Um, as you've gone through this process, um, how have people either in your personal life or professional life who weren't <laughs> sold on your ideas reacted to you changing your mind? Was there anything they did that made uh, getting to this point harder or easier for you? Well, you know, I think there are people that, you know, they, they're kind of like, well, that, why did it take you so long? And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's about time or, well, it's too late. You know, you just made a bunch of money off this book and, you know, that kind of a thing. So I, and I, I, I can't say that, that that's not, those it. aren't fair observations, but, um, but that, you know, I think that kind of reaction can, can, um, it can tempt you to want to just uh, become defensive. Definitely. How do you balance that? What shored you up against the defensiveness? What made you kind of willing to deal with the slings and arrows of outrageous eye rolls? <laughs> well, I think that I just, you know, I, when you step into a, a public setting and you put ideas out there, you have to own up to, um, public criticism. So I think I was somewhat used to that, but I kind of kept going because it wasn't for those people that I was doing it. Um, I always believed that there was this group of people out there who understood the value of Christians being willing to reevaluate, being willing to admit that they're wrong. And even, um, if they didn't agree with the final conclusion that I came to, um, viewed it as a healthy thing. And I, and I was hearing from those people along the way who were saying, you know, this is healing for me to, um, to know that you're asking these questions, to know that you're inviting this, this is facilitating conversations with my parents. This is helping me to process my own life. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing because, you know, I, I want, I wanted to do this because I wanted to, um, try to make amends as much as I can and help people who are harmed by my book. But at the end of the day, you can't even do something like this completely for other people because they might not appreciate it at all. You have to do it because you just think it's, it's the right thing to do. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I felt that it was what I was supposed to do. I think there's maybe an impulse, especially within defined communities and institutions, um, to kind of get your house in order privately before you get in or before you go out and engage other communities or engage the public in any kind of outward facing way. But that's not often been the pattern for the church, like the Going even back to the first church council in the book of Acts, Paul and Peter were having public disagreements about how, uh, whether Gentiles who are being welcomed into the faith should be expected to conform to Jewish cultural customs as well. How has this experience either reaffirmed or changed your understanding of 
what it means to go through hard conversations in public as a Christian? Well, I think that um, the issue of the institutions and their kind of mechanisms of self-protection are a big part of what makes this very difficult because um, it can be it can be challenging, you know, to evaluate things that become criticisms of other leaders or past decisions. And I think that we just have to be more aware of of those um, those forces and those pressures. And what I mean by that is being being aware that there are there's institutional bias, there's institutional self-protection, um, there's there are financial repercussions. You know, uh, this my books they sold a lot of copies. You know, that was my livelihood. Um, it was uh, I won't pretend that it wasn't hard to make the decision. You know, when I'm thinking about kids in college and those types of things. And I think that that is true, you know, from a uh, from an institutional standpoint too. You know, if you begin to uh, apologize for certain things, that gives an air of weakness, that slows the sense of energy and momentum. Maybe that's that slows giving, that slows whatever. I mean, there there are all these other pressures, and um, you know, I think it brings us back to that question of, you know, what does it profit? a man or the church or, you know, a leader to gain the whole world and lose your soul. You know, are you, are you, are you willing to, um, walk a path of, um, humiliation? Uh, you know, are you willing to follow in the path of Jesus who was literally crucified? Um, and absolutely uh, had his momentum stopped. Yeah, exactly. Serious momentum stop. Um, but you know, it, you know, it's like it's like we it's like funny to say that, but it you know, perceptions and all these things that give people energy about being a part of something, which leads to success. Those things are often really at odds with the the shape of the gospel, which is repentance and dying to self and rebirth, um, and resurrection. You know, is <laughs> the that process is is a humbling and and it doesn't come across as powerful strong and you know the winning side mm. and so i think being more aware of that is a is an important part of the church doing this better and um and i think it's just it's just so easy this is what i saw in our church you know there had been a history of things being done a certain way and then problems would start to emerge from that and leaders would just change the way they were doing it, but they would never acknowledge that they changed or that there was a policy change or that they were wrong. It was just, oh, we're just doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, just pay no attention to the man behind the curtain kind of a thing. It's just like, oh, this is what we do now. And I think what what is lost there is it might keep the momentum and it might keep the kind of the, you know, the facade of success and so on, but there are all these hurt people who are weakened, damaged, and often just end up leaving the church. That their their relationship with God was harmed because of hypocrisy or you know practices and rules of men that were not biblical. And if nobody ever um, goes back and says we we got something wrong and and we need to acknowledge that, 
those people, I think they're, they're just, it's a, there's a hindrance to them experiencing healing. Mm-hmm. Um, the big thing that I keep coming back to is if we really, if, if the whole basis of our relationship with God is repentance and faith, if the only way into a relationship with God is admitting that you're wrong, then, you know, evangelical Christians should be the best at admitting their their mistakes and failures. If we really believe that God is a God of grace and that our relationship with him has never been based in our rightness or worthiness, then we should be, you know, we should be known for being people who are remorseful over our our sins and our failures. And, and we should be known for people who admit that we are wrong. And for whatever reason, it's the entire, it's the exact opposite that we're the people who are known for just telling everybody else that they're wrong. And I think that's why the secular culture just jumps all over us when we make mistakes because we act as if we, we don't. And, and I think that's to our, to our damage. And even if we, uh, don't act as if we don't in the church, even if we are very open and vulnerable and even proactive about looking for opportunities for repentance toward one another and with one another. Uh, I think you're accurate in that we're not seen and understood by people outside the church as a people group to behave that way. Um, And that is something we have to um, if it's true, reckon with and correct. Uh, but we need to not just reason from the gospel and teach and train and rebuke and encourage one another toward righteousness in the faith, but we have to actually be seen to do that as well. Uh, and it, there is a difference between doing something and being transparently and accurately seen to do that. And I think both of those are important. One is important for spiritual formation. The other is important for witness and evangelism. I think that's well said. And I think, you know, your example of Peter and Paul is a good one that I'm sure that there were some people, maybe Peter, who would have preferred for that, (laughs) that moment of correction to be a private, you know, family member meeting, you know, church member meeting. And, and obviously Paul recognized that there was, it was important for others not to keep repeating the mistakes that it needed to be, it needed to be very public. And it's and we know we have resurrection. We don't have to necessarily protect ourselves. I, you brought up the phrase dying to yourself, and it can I imagine there are times when this felt that way, that vulnerability felt piercing. Uh, yeah. but we don't need to be so obsessive about protecting ourselves because we know that whatever wounds we have are going to be healed, and whatever injuries we go through are going to experience resurrection. Okay, that was part of my interview with Joshua Harris. I'm really grateful he could join us, and there are a few points he made that I think are especially worth pulling out. First, an easy one. He talked a little bit in that interview about a documentary that one of his colleagues made about this process that he went through. You can watch that documentary for free online by going to isurvivedikdg.com. That's I survived IKDG, as in 
ikissedatinggoodbye.com. And we'll have the link to that at the top of the show notes. Next, we talk a lot at the Center for Christian Civics about what it means to recognize the noetic effects of the fall. That is, the effects the fall has had on the way we think and reason. We don't see things perfectly clearly. It's like we're peering out at the world through a grimy window. When it comes to politics, that means that our ideologies and our political beliefs are insufficient. No matter how much confidence we have in them or in the people who espouse them, they're the best guesses of fallen people about how to reach particular goals in a world that has more variables than we can account for. Every law, every political platform, every new policy, these things are being put together by fallen people who, because of the fall, all have intellectual and moral blind spots, and are going to continue to have them until Christ comes back and makes his people perfect. Christians know that these things are true of every person, so we should be constantly ready to receive new information, to be challenged and refined. Finding out we were wrong about something actually proves the gospel. Being willing to be seen saying, I was wrong, is evidence to the people around us that we believe the Bible when it says that we're looking at the world through a glass dimly and we won't see clearly until Jesus returns and gives us that perfect sight. Power politics is about insisting that you're right, that there's nothing you haven't accounted for, that the people you're talking to can forget about their judgment and just rely on yours instead. Christian humility says something different. It says that I'm a broken creature, desperately waiting for Jesus to return and make me whole. So there's a chance that I'm wrong, and I need your help to figure that out. Come, let us reason together. Let us test everything and cling to what's good. Another thing I really loved about that conversation with Joshua Harris was that he had thought about dating and courtship a lot. I mean a lot. But, as he noted, for a big chunk of the last 20 years, the people who were in a position to really interrogate his thinking, to test him and challenge him and refine him, were all people who were more or less on the same page as him. He was aware that some people out there weren't helped by his books, but they weren't in a position to be close to him, so he wasn't in a position to learn from them. That Christian humility we talked about a second ago doesn't do us any good unless we're exercising it with people who are different from us. Once Joshua started practicing that humility with people who had a different take on dating or who had different experiences with courtship or who had relationships to his book that he'd never predicted, that was when he was able to start seeing things he hadn't seen before. Politics, unfortunately, functions the same way. Some people have heaps of Christian humility. Other people have heaps of close family members or friends or at least Facebook contacts who don't share their politics. But for our relationships to our politics to be refined by Christ, we need to have both of those things at the same time. And that's a fight. That's hard to do. The last thing I want to call out is the fact that this process for Joshua Harris was probably embarrassing. For better or worse, his identity was tied to that book and to those ideas. They're what gave him his career. 
It's what other people knew him for. Bring up his name and you'd get someone saying, Joshua Harris, that's the courtship guy, right? Or, oh, the dude who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye? And even if that didn't mean anything to him, he had talked about the topic a lot. A lot. For decades. I know that I'm embarrassed to say I was wrong in situations with much lower stakes and much shorter history for things that I don't have a track record on. A few months ago, my mother insisted that she had had a burger at a Chick-fil-A. And I rolled my eyes and I told her there's no way. And she, she insisted. She said, yes, I did. And eventually, when she had dug her heels in and it was clear that I was not going to dissuade her of this, I did that thing where you say, okay, to end the conversation, but you don't really believe it. And then later, you kind of think about how absurd the other person is for insisting that thing, and you congratulate yourself for not being like that. Uh, Yeah, well, a couple weeks ago, I found out that there are 12 Chick-fil-A's that, for reasons I won't get into now, actually do serve burgers. And Just saying that I was wrong about that, this thing that happened once that has no moral weight behind it, no urgency behind it, and that I in no way, shape, or form have had my reputation or my livelihood staked on, that was hard enough. If this was a topic we had yelled about across the Thanksgiving table or like something one of us had posted obnoxious memes about on the other's Facebook wall or something like that, it would have been even harder. But even that wouldn't still quite be kind of the same stakes emotionally that Joshua was feeling. It was really encouraging to me to have this conversation with him and to find out that it is possible, even in high-stakes situations, to repent, that God gives you that strength. It's not easy, but it is possible. Now, Joshua and I talked for about twice as long as you heard, and that's not unusual. A lot of the conversations you hear on this podcast go long. A few times a year, we take some of the best bits of these conversations that don't make it into the podcast, and we release them as bonus episodes. The bonus episode coming out in a couple months is going to include, among some other odds and ends, more with Joshua Harris. If you'd like to get that bonus episode, then please go to christiancivics.org support and become a monthly donor. If all you can really offer right now is $1 a month or $5 a month, that's fine. I work for a small startup nonprofit. I understand. But the bonus episodes go out to anyone who's made a donation in the past year. So monthly gifts are the best way to help us budget and make sure that you stay on the list for those bonus episodes. We can't do this work without the enthusiastic support of everyone who wants to help the church engage the public square in a healthier way, who wants our neighbors to start seeing Christians as a solution to problems facing our government, rather than view the church as a problem for our country that needs to be overcome. If that's you, then visit christiancivics.org and make an end-of-year donation to our work, or become a monthly donor today. Now, please join me in prayer. Father, we know that we don't see the world as you see the world. Man doesn't see as God sees. We know that the fall has affected 
every dimension of our lives, including our moral convictions, our ideologies, our reasoning. And we are not going to be able to function perfectly until that seed of the Holy Spirit that you've put in us, that you've given us as a deposit on the life that is to come, blossoms into the complete new life we are going to have. When we see your Son face to face, then we will reason as we should reason. Until then, we're going to make mistakes, and it's going to be hard and embarrassing. So we ask you to equip us with spirits of joy, spirits that embrace getting to prove the gospel through our frailty, especially in situations where it's particularly difficult or particularly embarrassing, make our witness particularly compelling. You've said that you will equip us for every good work, so we ask you to equip us for the good work of repentance, the good work of apology, the good work of honesty about our shortcomings. We pray for this encouragement, for this strength, especially when it comes to the parts of life where it's hard to see our own mistakes, or when it's particularly embarrassing to admit them, or even particularly dangerous to our career or our esteem or our reputation. That kind of humility and that kind of honesty is part of what it means to flourish as a human being made by God and living in a fallen world. And so we ask that that not just become the culture in our homes and in our churches, but that through our churches that can become the culture of our communities, including our civic communities. Teach us to reward politicians, reward government officials who are able to admit they were wrong, who are, as your word tells us, people are meant to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Those are not qualities that our political system is set up to elevate, to venerate, to reward right now. But we ask that when your kingdom comes, our neighbors, our political allies, and even our political opponents will see people kneeling before Jesus and recognize that joyful humility in the way their Christian neighbors listened to others and admitted when they were wrong. We pray these things in his name for his glory. Amen. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you again to Joshua Harris. You can see that documentary about his journey at isurvivedikdg.com. If you're in the D.C. area, remember to join us for our Christmas Open House on December 13th. More information is on our website. Our website is also where you can sign up for our newsletter, where every week between now and the end of January, we're sending out uh, prayer points and sample prayers for the health of our political process, the effect it's having on our church communities, and the men and women doing the work of government. We'll be back on the podcast in a couple weeks. Until then, go to Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars as a Christmas gift and a nice complimentary card in the reviews section. And visit our website, christiancivics.org, to learn more about our work empowering the church to be lamps on stands across the political spectrum. 